welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It is great to see you today. Can we welcome our online campus, our Appleton campus, Germantown campus? Welcome them. I don't know about you guys, but I am in love with global warming this weekend. Anybody? This is awesome. Yes. For the rest of you people, sorry. Uh, man, this is great. This is so, 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 so great. And you know what, what's cool is, uh, um, is like golf courses are starting to open up. And uh, uh, I, I, my first winter here, I remember going, like I'd never seen that much snow in my entire life. Uh, it'd never been that cold for that long a period of time in my entire life. Uh, and then the salt. You know, when you're not raised in, in the South, you don't deal with salt. And so the white on your vehicle, the white on your clothes... All that nastiness gets on the inside of your carpet. It's a whole deal. So it had been like one of those winters. Like I just was like, oh, dear God. Is this going to be the way it's going to be every year kind of a deal? Yes, that's the answer. And so anyhow, but I remember going uh, to, to the golf course just down the street in Germantown. And they had it open. I thought, man, if I can just get out and just do something outside. And uh, it was a par four. And I had shanked it left, and there was water that came along the side of the left-hand side of the, the fairway going up to the green. I was like, ah. And I went to grab another ball out of my bag to take another shot. That's what all good golfers do, right? That's my favorite, and uh, just to get a, a, a do-over. And so uh, a mulligan. And so all of a sudden I look, and I see my ball on the green. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. That water's all frozen. So... What would have been a horrible shot where I'm from was like I was shooting for Eagle and made it. And I was like, I love Wisconsin. <laughs> so anyhow, hopefully you'll get out and get some golf in or whatever it is that you like to do. It's so funny to me when it hits 40 degrees after the wintertime, people are in shorts, running, walking. Ah, not me, man. I do. My goodness. So anyhow. But uh, so today we're starting a brand new series called Four Cups. And uh, if you've been serving Christ for a long period of time or if you're brand new in your faith, I think this series is going to shed some light and bring some insight on some things that, quite frankly, you might not have thought of. Just to be honest with you, I didn't think of. Uh, and uh, we're going to begin the series today. We're going to have this series all the way for the next, this week and the next three weeks up through Palm Sunday. And we're going to kind of conclude with this communion time because that's really what this is about. Uh, it's background on going back 3,500 years ago to when the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews, were under captivity in the land of Egypt. And they were in such duress and such slavery and such bondage that they began to cry out to God. And the Bible says that God heard their cries. And in doing so, God made a promise to his people. And what's interesting, so the origination of the four cups that we're going to talk about is actually where the ideology and the theology of communion comes from. It was a festival called Passover that was instituted 3,500 years ago in the nation of Israel with God's people as they were in slavery in Egypt. And God made a covenant with them. God made promises to them. And they celebrate those promises at Passover. And so they would drink four cups. And I'm going to tell you what those four cups are in just a minute. I'm also going to show you where it's at in the Bible. But these were God's words. These were God's promise to his people. Remember, God's responsible for doing two things, keeping the principles and the promises of his word. That's the reason why we lean so heavily on God's word that if it were to move, we would fall. And so because God doesn't change and God won't move, it's immovable. He's steadfast. Uh, it, it's, it's something you can build your life on. 
So when Jesus is in the upper room 2,000 years ago, some 1,500 years after this, he's in the upper room and he's celebrating Passover with the disciples. He would have drank of these four cups. He would have read of this passage. He would have reminded them of this promise. And what scholars will tell us is probably the fourth and the final cup is where he says, this cup now is a cup of my covenant with you. This is the new wine. This is my blood that will be shed for the remission of sins. And as often as you do this, communion, do this in remembrance of me. So what I want to do, especially in this Lenten season, in this season where we're leading up to the Passion Week and and Easter, I want to show you where the theology of communion comes from. It's not a New Testament. It's a New Testament concept, but its roots and origins go to the Old Testament. I also want to show you that because God's the same today, yesterday, and forever, that his promises in the Old Testament are still the promises for us. I also want to show you in this series how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those four promises that God gave to Israel some 3,500 years ago. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And these are where these four promises are recorded. These are the words of God to Israel and their plight and their slavery. Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, God says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Secondly, I will free you from being slaves to them. Thirdly, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Fourth, verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So these are the four promises that God gives. They represent the four cups. So what they would do at Passover is they would take the four cups, they would fill them with wine, they would go back and recite God's word, and then they would partake of the cup. Then they would recite the next promise, they would partake of the second cup. They would recite the third promise, they would partake of the cup. They would recite the fourth and the last promise, verse 7, and then they would partake of the cup. Each time partaking of the cup was symbolic of their covenant relationship with God to them and them to God. Thus is communion. It's symbolic of the salvation relationship that we have to Jesus and he to us. So these four promises, these four cups, first, I will bring you out. That's the cup of sanctification. We're going to talk about that today. The second cup is I will free you. It's the cup of deliverance. That's why they would refer to it. This is the cup of deliverance. The third cup, we'll talk about in two weeks from today, I will redeem you. That's the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup, I will take you as my own, the Jews would call it the cup of praise. And this is when scholars tell us that when Jesus would have taken this cup and would have said, this is my body, this do in remembrance of me. So today, let's talk about the cup of sanctification. I know sanctification is a word that we don't use much in our vocabulary, but sanctification means this. It's the root word sanctify, which means to set apart, to separate from. So when God comes into the lives of the, of the Israelites and their bondage in Egypt, he is setting them apart as his people. Sanctification, as we see in the New Testament, which is a redemption of our sins, Jesus Christ comes in and he sanctifies us. He sets us apart from our sins. He sets us apart. God calls us his own. So another word for sanctify, just for the, for the uh, conversation today, would be probably a word that you would more readily recognize or embrace is salvation. Jesus is saving you from your sins. He is saving you from yourself. He is sanctifying you from yourself. He is sanctifying you from your sins. He is setting you apart. That's what happens at salvation. So let's talk about this cup of salvation, if we will. 
Verse 6 of Exodus chapter 6 we just read. God said to his people, I will bring you out from the yoke. I will bring you out from the slavery. I will bring you out from your oppression. I will bring you out from your oppressors, from the Egyptians. How did they get there? So glad you asked that question. Exodus chapters 1 through 5 give us the plight of the nation of Israel. It gives us the hardships that they're going through. See, the Israelites are in Egypt. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you read of of an individual named Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph in the coat of many colors. It's been turned into a Broadway show and the the whole deal, and we know this, and this is a recited Old Testament uh, story that that, uh, that Jewish families will recite and Christian families will recite. And and Joseph had this ability to interpret dreams. He was also the favored son of his father Jacob. And so because of that, his brothers turned against him, and they sold him into slavery into Egypt. Well, at this point in time, the Israelites were basically a nomadic group of people. They'd come from the Ur of the Chaldees, from the, basically the Fertile Crescent where civilization began, from Abraham. And, and what, what had transpired is, is that they were just kind of peacefully coexisting. Egypt was the most powerful empire, country, group of people, civilization on the face of the planet at that time. So Joseph is sold into slavery, and you know the rest of his story of kind of going from the pit to the palace and to the prison. And then while he's in the prison, he uses his ability to interpret dreams, and it brings him into a place before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh basically says, look, I've had this dream, and I've been told that you can interpret it. And Joseph says, yeah, I'll tell you exactly what this means. You're going to have seven years of unprecedented bumper crops. Agriculture, everything is going to flourish in the land. But it's going to be followed by seven years of complete and utter drought and famine. So the wisdom, Pharaoh, is to take the plenty of the first seven years to eat what you need, but to store, because this will continue to make you the powerhouse of the world, because the nations of the world will come to you, because then you will be the one that will have the grain to prepare for the famine of the seven years. Pharaoh hears this. It registers with him. Pharaoh makes Joseph, this Hebrew boy, this Israelite, this Jew, he makes him number two, only, only to, second to him, unto, unto Pharaoh, the most powerful individual in the land of Egypt. Although Joseph is a Jew, he's not an Egyptian, he's still number two in the entire land, right below Pharaoh. It happens just like Joseph said in the dream. He has seven years of plenty. And so they, Joseph, has, he's got wisdom, and so he begins to appropriate the, the, the crops and do what they need to do to take care of that. And then seven years of famine come. Again, it's confirming everything. So, so the honeymoon just continues to linger more and more and more between Pharaoh and Joseph because Pharaoh sees the wisdom of Joseph and sees the hand of God on his life. And although the Egyptians are not God-fearing people, they are very spiritual people. And they see this as, as, a, as a sign of the gods uh, and their blessing upon Joseph. Although Joseph espouses one true God, which is Jehovah God, the God that you serve and that I serve, the God that the Jews serve. And so what happens in this famine is exactly what Joseph said in the dream. So Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt because that's where everybody's coming from the known world in order to get food. And when Joseph sees his brothers, there's this incredible story of reconciliation and a blessing that I don't have time to go into today. He goes to Pharaoh, long story short, and Pharaoh says, look, not only can your brothers come, but their families can come, and your father, and anyone that's attached to you could come. So the nation of Israel move from where they are, and they come, and they make their, land, they, they make their life now in Egypt. 
under the blessing of Pharaoh. And Joseph, being number two in the land, they had a very prosperous people. About the time of the famine, scholars tell us that the nation of Israel is around 400 people. Once we get to Exodus chapter 1, and they're slaves, they're 3 million. See, what happened is, is that God's blessing was upon his people. And so as they moved to Egypt, they grow from 400 people to 3 million people. And they began to just overpopulate. And that overpopulation begins to threaten the very existence of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are concerned that these Israelites, these Jews, these Hebrews, are going to basically overtake their government, are going to try to overthrow them. And so out of fear, they put a lid and they began to bring them into slavery. And they enslaved them. And that's where you find here the Israelites living in this land of slavery. It started off great, but like anything, it, it, it doesn't always stay that way. Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says, And there rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. What does that mean? It means that Pharaoh didn't, the, the, the deal kind of died with the last Pharaoh, and the new Pharaoh didn't have the same deal that the old Pharaoh did, and so all bets are off, and so because you are now threatening our existence in the land of Egypt, we're going to enslave you, Israel. And so Israel cries out to God in their own pain, and then God shows up through Moses. In Exodus chapter 6, he vocalizes those four promises, those four cups. And the first of which that we're going to focus on today is that cup of sanctification, to be set apart from, to be saved, that cup of salvation, if you would. It's God saving Israel from three things. Number one, slavery. He's saving them from slavery. Exodus chapter 1, if you want to go back there, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 14, I'm going to read this. Then the new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. And look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come too far and too numerous for us. So come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, and they join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and force them into labor. They built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread. And the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh forces the Israelites to make the, bit, the bricks to build these magnificent structures. Again, the, the physical architectural structures that were built during that age, i.e. pyramids, were done by Hebrew slaves. That spirit of slavery is the same spirit that exists today. Oh, we're not in a physical slave uh, situation in North America. But we, I meet people all the time that are enslaved to some dominating influence in their life that they don't want to be enslaved to. Finances? Um, emotional issues such as bitterness over the past and victimization, addictions. I mean, there's all types of things that we can be enslaved to. Because that, that's the context for today. That same spirit, here's what I, one thing I want you to catch. 3,500 years ago, people are still people in the 21st century. 
This is the powerful thing about God's word. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever. God does not change. His word is timeless. Even in an ever-changing landscape in which we live in, God's word is still pertinent and applicable to our lives. And the same issues that Israel's dealing with in a physical sense, we deal with in an emotional, mental, and sometimes even physical sense. You lose your house, there's a physical reality to maybe a, an addiction that is, that's enslaving you, a slavery that's, in, in, uh, that, that, that's, that's enslaving you with, with financial problems and issues. I don't know what your issues are, but we all have issues. I don't know what your kryptonite to your Superman is, but we all have some type of a kryptonite. We all have something in which it is our Achilles heel. It is our point of weakness. It is the, the chink in the proverbial on, uh, arm, armor. And that slavery tries to come in, and it tries to enslave us. Remember I told you that I was going to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all this? John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 34 and 35 Jesus said, I tell you most solemnly that anyone who chooses a life of sin is trapped in a dead-end life and, in fact, is a slave. And a slave is transient who cannot come and go at will. Any one of us who find ourselves in this type of sin, and we're all born into sin. For all of us have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says to the church in Rome that none of us are righteous. So we're all slave to sin unless we ask Jesus Christ to come and sanctify us, to set us apart, to save us from our sins. John 3, 16. For God so loved you and I that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish but would have everlasting life. They would be saved. Verse 17 said, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Anybody who's in sin is in slavery. And even if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're still living in a fallen world, and we still with fallen, we deal with fallen humanity, and we still with, deal with our own, pardon the expression, our own jacked-upness, right? I know that's not a real word, but we're all jacked up. We're all messed up in some way. We, we all, none of us make it to the factory store, right? We're all, we're, we're all like at the outlet store, right? You know what I'm saying? We're at one of the outlets. Like one, one sleeve's longer than the other, Right? One, one pant leg shorter than the other. I mean, that's kind of what we are. One foot's a little bit bigger than the other. I mean, that's, we're irregular. We're all jacked up. And those of you that don't think that you are, you really are messed up. <laughs> right? The person that goes, man, I know I'm jacked up. You're probably the best person in the room. Because you know. You know that you're fallen. And what I want you to understand, this was a physical reality 3,500 years ago with the Hebrews and the Egyptians. It's a spiritual reality of us today. The second promise, the second thing that, that, that this cup of sanctification that God said he would deal with was murder. He said he would deal with murder. Pharaoh was ordering the murder, murder of all of these Hebrew boys. Look at Exodus one twenty two. Then Pharaoh gave the order to all the people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw him into the Nile, speaking of the Nile River, but let every girl live. Pharaoh ordered that all the Hebrew boys, it was a genocide, would be killed and destroyed. Why? Because he didn't want them to be able to reproduce. He wanted to be able to control the population. This is where we get the story of Moses from. This is where the narrative comes in from Moses. Moses' mother has him. She keeps him for as long as she can. They're throwing the babies into the Nile River, which was crocodile infested. 
And, uh, and so she prepares this thatch basket and she puts it in the Nile River, which was a miracle that he made it down. And she takes it and puts it in the river and it goes downstream. Why? Because that's where the Egyptian women would go to bathe, hoping that one of them would see this baby and would have a maternal instinct and would take her son in and raise him. And that's exactly what happened. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh. That's a result of of this. And, 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 and the deal is, Pharaoh, what he was trying to do, he was trying to stop the potential of the nation of Israel. He was trying to stop their future. But see, God had already told Abraham, generations ago, that he would make them as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And when God's declares something, man cannot stop it. And what's trying to happen is, is that Pharaoh's trying to control it. He's trying to murder them. But God says, no, I'm going to be your salvation. I'm going to take the yoke. So that first yoke is slavery. The second yoke is the murder. I'm going to take the, 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 the trying to stop the potential of the nation of Israel, and I'm going to release Pharaoh's power, and I'm going to release my power to set you free and to do what I've called you to do. Again, this is not a new issue. Today, in the world in which we live, we deal with an adversary, the same adversary, Satan himself, that, that was behind the murderous plots there uh, 3,500 years ago, even to today. And I'm not just talking about abortion, although that's a very big issue in the world in which we live in today. It's going to become incredibly, increasingly uh, important as to this next fall when it makes its way back to the Supreme Court. And now then with the, with the death of Justice Scalia as a conservative, and I'm not trying to be political, I'm just trying to say this is going to play out in our court system. This is going to play out in our land. I ultimately think that we on the issue of abortion won't stand before God as a church on, on abortion. I think we as a people of the nation will. But I think as a church, our responsibility is to take care of who? The widows and the orphans. Who are the orphans in our world? Kids that are in foster care. Close to 3,000 kids in foster care in southeastern Wisconsin right now. What is the church of Jesus Christ doing about it? That's what we'll stand account for. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. The reality is, is God still cares. God cares about the murder of a child. God cares about the plight of an orphan. God cares about any time a future or a potential is cut short. Why? Because God's created us, Jeremiah says, with a future and a hope. That's how he's created you. And any time you and I live below that future, we live below that hope that God has for us, it grieves him. It hurts him. It's the reason why Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy what? Your future, your potential. Jesus says, but I've come that you may have life, comma, and life to the full. Not just to have life in the sweet by and by, but have life in the here and now. That's what that means. Not just salvation for eternity, but salvation today. See, this is not just a dress rehearsal for when we get to heaven. This is a real life. This is a full contact sport. God wants us to live. The Bible says in him we live and we move and we have our being. And so anytime the enemy of your soul pulls you down and shrinks you down like a pair of Levi 501 jeans, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the very nature of God. It pushes against your own soul because you and I were created with potential, with future, with hope. And the enemy of our soul wants to try to kill us and destroy us and narrow us down. And God says to the nation of Israel, I will relieve you from this murderous plot. The third thing that he gives there is hopelessness. He will relieve us. He will take the yoke of hopelessness off. That's what he tells the nation of Israel. 
Exodus chapter 5, verse 6, 8, and 9 says, In the same day that Pharaoh gave the order to slave to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people, he said this, You are no longer to supply the people, the Israelites, with straw for making bricks. Now let's make it harder. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God, they say. Make the work harder for the people so that they may keep working and pay no attention to their lives. God says, you know what? I'm going to relieve you from that yoke of slavery, from that yoke of murder, from that yoke of hopelessness. Man, I meet people like this all the time. They're just tired. They're just worn out. That's what was happening there. They, they can't get ahead. You know, it's more bricks and there's no straw. Now, now you're going you're gonna to increase it? I only have so many hours in a day and, and I can't do anything. And God hears that. And Pharaoh makes a mockery, but, but God hears it. And just let me help you with something. God hears you when you pray. Sometimes people go, well, why do I have to pray? If God's going to do, if God knows what he's going to do, and God's all-powerful, why don't he just do it? Because God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to submit and surrender his sovereignty to the power of vocalized prayer of his people. That's a powerful statement. That's a deep theological statement. That says that God can do whatever God wants to do. But what does God do? He limits himself, not us limiting him, not our circumstances living to him, but God chooses to limit himself to be basically that when you call upon him, he will respond. Not like some cosmic ATM or cosmic Santa Claus. But when you cry out, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Cup of sanctification. They will be relieved from their hopelessness. They will be relieved from the murderous threats and the end of their potential. They'll be relieved of the slavery that tries to enslave them. And God will set them free. And so the reality is, is that what's happening is, is even in our own lives today, some 3,500 years later, it's this exhaustion. I, I, I can't work enough. I can't do enough. I can't get there. And I just, have you just, again, drank from the cup? Salvation. Jesus didn't just come to save you for salvation, for, for, for eternity. That, that's a big part of it. But to give you life today. Why are you only settling for half of it? Verse 10. I've come that you may have life. That's yeah, speaking of eternal life. But also life to the full. That's today. Now if you want to just live a horrible life and Go outside and eat worms and nobody loves me and everybody hates me. The sky is falling. You want to be chicken little? That's fine. Go on with your bad self. I'm going to choose to be the little engine that could. And in my case, the big engine that can. I'm just saying it's just because that's what God's word said I can do. There's this ideology in the church today that goes, well, if it's prosperous, that's just that's smoke and mirrors. No, it's God's word. If you have a theology of suffering, you have to have a theology of prosperity. Amen. If you want to live in, in the doldrums of life and you want to live in your melancholy state where the sky's always falling, go on with your bad self. But please don't sit at my table. Amen. Amen. The deal is God called us to greater things. And this ideology of hopelessness is something from the pit of hell. No, he's come that we may have life and life to the full. People should see a smile on your face and a song in your heart. People should see something about you that's resilient, that is, that is full of joy, that, 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 that just overflowing. Yes, 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 29, and 30, these aren't my words, come to me, all of you who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Not more work. Not more prune juice to give you a more sour look on your face. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what I want right there. Amen? I don't want that heavy, oh, everyone's just, oh, dear God, just let me get to my little corner in glory. If I can just get there one day, Jesus, no, I want to come walking in. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's up? I mean, like, right? There are restaurants to eat at. There are golf courses to play. There are beaches to be able to lay out on. Amen. Beach whales, don't shoot them. I'm just saying. Maybe you're tired today. That cup of sanctification, that cup of salvation, that's what God gave us to take away that hopelessness. So what do we do? How do we drink from the first cup? First of all, you make the move. Make the move. The Bible uses the word repent. Repent means to change direction, to go the opposite way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Therefore, come out from them and be separate. That word separate, sanctify. Separate from, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. And as I will be your father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So first of all, you have to make the move. God's not going to force you or make you. It's your choice. Secondly, let it go. Surrender. Palms up. God, here it is. Here's my past. Here's my present. Here's my future. Here's my everything. I'm going to let it go. When you, listen, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, you've got to surrender yourself. And for those of you that are type A like I am and you're a bit of a control freak, you, this is really going to be difficult for you. But you have to let it go. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, anyone who intends to come to me has to let me lead. You are not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I will show you. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself. You have to lay it down and surrender. And then the last thing is you've got to commit your life. You make the move. You surrender yourself. And then you commit your life. Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. That's how you drink of the cup of sanctification, the cup of salvation. God's already made the promise that he will take the yoke of slavery. He'll take the yoke of murder, of ending of your future. He'll take the yoke of hopelessness from you. How does he do that? Through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was a promise. But we know that Jesus Christ is the promise that is the fulfillment of God's word, of the Old Testament, of the law. You know, just as I wrap this up and just thinking about today, you know, there was a, there's been a lot of people that have come to faith in Christ. There's been a lot of people that have drank of this cup of salvation at Life Church. 
There were about 400 people last year for the very first time that gave their life to Christ, and they drank of that cup of sanctification. I'm meaning that metaphorically speaking. And I remember, I'll never forget, because as I'm doing this message, and, and I'm thinking back, because I had a conversation back in November with the, with the guide, the tour guide in Israel, when we took the trip as a church. And uh, matter of fact, one night at dinner at, for, for Sabbath, he showed us how the, the, the prayer and, and, and part of the, the, the ritual, the tradition, that the Jew would go through, uh, and still does, in order to commemorate Sabbath. And all part of the drinking of the cup. We had a conversation about the four cups, and it just kind of reminded me because uh, of, of, a, of an individual that attended Life Church. He's gone on to be with the Lord. And um, Jewish guy, lived in Milwaukee all of his life. And I will never forget of having conversations with him about a personal issue with Jesus Christ. I remember one time that, you know, he was at my house in a small group, and we were talking, and, and I realized he didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. So I began to pray for him. And then one day, God really let him, put on heavy on my heart to, just to kind of almost have a confrontational conversation with him. And that's not my style. And uh, so I met him for burgers at Elsa on the square down in Milwaukee. And, and we were having, having uh, lunch together. And I just said, you know, I called him my name. And I just said, man, where are you right now if you were to die and stand before God? Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? You've been attending Life Church for quite some time. We've had multiple conversations. You've even talked to, about wanting to go to Israel with me and, and let's go do this and that kind of a deal. But are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And he smiled. He said, my business partner said this was, lunch was going to go this way, that you were going to have this conversation with me. I said, well, he's right. So we began to have this discourse and, and we began to have this conversation. And I could tell he was staring at this cup of salvation trying to say, hey, I get it. And I believe in Jehovah. I believe in the Old Testament. I, I believe in what God said to, to, to the Jews. But I just don't know if Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So we had some conversations and kind of left lunch that way. And there was no prayer for salvation. There was no like, oh moment, you know, kind of a deal. It was just a conversation, and it was good. He continued to come to church. We continued to talk, and we talk about sports. We talk about all different kinds of things and have these conversations, and I'll never forget the day that I was given an altar call. I was given an opportunity for people to come and give their life to Christ, and he raised his hand, and so I said, everybody keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and I, I said, and I ask it again, and he put your hand, everybody put your hands down, and we're going to do this again. Make sure you understand what I just said. Did it again. I did it one more time. He did it the third time. And I pulled out the microphone. I said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, please keep your eyes closed. Please keep your head down for the reverence of what God's doing in this room. And I looked at him and I called him by name because we were, it was in the old building. It was really close. And I just said, do you know what you're doing? He said, I think so. You're really ready to do this? This is what we talked about at Elsa's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sure? You understand? I got it. I'm good. Okay, are we going to pray the sinner's prayer now? Are we not letting the sinner's prayer? And as I'm talking about this Jewish tradition, meeting this reality of Jesus, this cup of sanctification, I'm reminded of him today. And I don't know where you are, at the Germantown campus, online, at the Appleton campus, but I believe there are people that are watching, that are here, and your heart's far away from God. And it's not that you're a terrible, horrible person, but you are a slave to your own sin, just as everybody in this room. 
is or has been. And I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ today. Would you everybody bow your head and close your eyes with me? At the Appleton campus, just bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm just simply, even at the Appleton campus, your campus pastor is going to make his way forward and just to kind of help me with this, and he'll close the service out. But I just want to give everyone an opportunity. Whether you're online, you're at Germantown, you're at Appleton, I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that we will be saved. And I believe that's what God wants to do today. He wants some of you to drink of that cup of salvation for the very first time. And that's in Jesus. So today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to give your life to Christ today, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to ask those of you that have prayed this prayer before at all of our campuses to pray this prayer together, to lend your voice with those that are praying this prayer for the very first time. Would you pray? Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart, to come into my life, to be my Lord, and to be my Savior. I surrender my life to you. I repent of my sins. And I ask you, Jesus, Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave, just like the Bible says, I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart today and take away all the pain, the hopelessness, the slavery to sin and give me life and life to the full just like your word says. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.